Welcome to Downtown Talks. My name's Aubrey Spears, and I'm the pastor of the Church of the Incarnation. And tonight is the beginning of a lecture series that's going to stretch over four weeks. And the title is Your Work in the Common Good. And we're going to explore the Christian vision of work. So this lecture series is for Christians and for people who aren't Christian, but they're interested in the wisdom that Christianity has to offer to our common human project of living and working well together. So each week, here's going to be our agenda. At 7 o'clock, we'll begin with hors d'oeuvres and, and you can get drinks. And then at 7.15, I'll begin the lecture. It'll last around 45 minutes. And then we'll have a Q&A time. So you've got your note sheet. Uh, you can jot down questions if they come up along the way. At the end, we'll just um, have kind of a free-for-all in Q&A. If, if you don't know, child care is provided. Um, the Church of the Incarnation is providing child care workers at the church building, the building where they worship, which is just across from Burger King next to the Urban Exchange. You can talk to anybody at the table or myself or just ask somebody and they might happen to know about it. But I, I think that you can drop your kids off there beginning at 630. Is that right? Someone know? And uh, you need to pick them up by 9 o'clock, though. So, all right. 8.55 works, 8.58, just by 9 o'clock. All right, let's begin. Now, it's an interesting thing when you think about work. For most people, work takes up most of our life. And not only does it take up most of our life when you begin to think about the span of your life, it also occupies the core of our week and the core of our kind of waking moments. Now, some people, when it comes to work, are vastly overworked and vastly overpaid. And some people are, work way too long hours and make too little. Now, as all of you know, work can be a terrible curse or it can be an incredible blessing. So, I think there's going to be different reasons that people are here tonight and over the next several weeks. I think some people will be here with a purely practical interest. Maybe your work is difficult or you're unhappy with your work, or you're trying to decide what you want to do. I know there are college students here, and you're about to launch out into a career. Maybe you're at a place in life where you're um, contemplating changing jobs, or you're in a mid-career kind of moment, or maybe for you, work is no longer meaningful, or it's never been meaningful. Now, part of what I'm going to do over the four lectures is show that our predicament with work is more complex, that our yearning when it comes to work is deeper, and that the role of work in our lives is of greater importance than we often realize. In fact, I don't think it's too strong of a statement to say, and this is, I think, on your note sheet, 
It is your daily work, whatever your job, that gives meaning to your life. It's your daily work, whatever your job, that gives meaning to your life. Look at it this way. In America, when Christians talk about work, or when the church talks about work, and the relationship of work and of Christianity, the discussion often goes in one of two directions. Now, this is when Christians or the church in America address work, which it rarely does. But when it does, it often goes in one of two directions. It'll go in the direction of ethics. I think that's a blank again. Sometimes when the church or Christians talk about work, they talk about your work life in terms of ethics. In other words, they talk about what kind of worker you are. Are you an honest worker? Are you fair? Are you kind? Do you work hard? Are you generous? Do you steal from the job? So this approach to work is about personal virtue. And this is something that Christianity is definitely concerned with, and it's a very important issue that I'm not going to deal with. Another approach to work, when the church does find itself to getting around to talking about work, another approach, some churches, some Christians think in terms of evangelism. This is when a person talks about ways to share your your faith through your job or on your job. Or it may come in the form of sponsoring Bible studies at work or providing spiritual counseling at work. Again, it's an issue I'm not going to deal with. See, the problem with both of these approaches to work is that a critical piece of the equation is missing. Whether you're talking about being ethical on the job or sharing your faith through your job, the failure is that you're failing to attend to your job. You're failing to think about work itself. You're only thinking about work as a venue or work as a backdrop. But at the heart of the Christian vision of work is work matters. In and of itself, work has intrinsic value. The kinds of products that you produce on your job. The models and principles by which your organization is run and managed. The way your particular organization is shaping the sector in which you work. These things matter immensely. And these are the type of issues that I'll be dealing with over these three weeks. And it's in this context, with the idea that work in and of itself matters, it's in this context that I am making the statement, it is your daily work, whatever your job is, that gives meaning to your life. And having a meaningful life gets rounded out, of course, beyond the job. It gets rounded out in our families and in our religious communities and our communal community activities. A meaningful life gets rounded out through our friends and our vacations and dabbling with our hobbies and so forth. But work takes up the core of our week, not our hobbies, not our friendships. And for most working people, not even time with the family. 
If the job is draining meaning from your life and purpose from your life, then all else is shadowed by it. And if you've ever, as a pastor, many times I sit with people whose jobs is a dark shadow that taints all of their life. If work can give a central and core meaning to living, then all other meanings cluster around this one. Therefore, a right view of work is fundamental to a satisfying life. See, much of the malaise in America is connected to how we're approaching work. A right view of work becomes a fundamental key to a satisfying life. Now, these are huge statements I've just made. I've just made two really big, unqualified statements. I've said, your daily work gives meaning to your life. That's huge. I mean, for a pastor to say that, it sounds a bit unreligious. It sounds a bit secular. It sounds a bit mundane. That your daily work is what gives meaning to your life. And secondly, that a right view of work is fundamental to a satisfying life. Now, what I mean by these two statements is what it's going to take the next three weeks, this lecture and then three more, to really unpack. Because you can fill in those two statements with all sorts of meaning that I don't have. In order to really understand how a Christian vision of work can produce those two statements, your daily work is what gives meaning to your life, and that's whatever your job, whether it's blue collar or white collar, whether you're working with your head or you're working with your hands, whether you're getting paid for your work at the highest level of an executive salary, or you're not getting paid for your work as a volunteer at the hospital or a housewife, whatever your job is, that it is your job that gives meaning to your life. See, I've heard, often heard people say, well, somebody asked me, tell me about yourself, and then you tell them, well, I do so-and-so, and then I hear this kind of judo move made often. No, I don't want to hear about what you do, I want to hear about what you are. Well, that's a profoundly unchristian move, is what I'm going to argue over the next three weeks. That who we are and the meaning we get out of life and the satisfaction we experience in life is deeply connected to what we do, and that is at the heart of a Christian view of work. Now, again, we'll unpack that in lots, from lots of different angles. But tonight what we're going to do is we're going to start at the 50,000 foot level, okay? Tonight what I'm going to do is I'm going to say that in order to understand how these two things are true, they must be understood in light of the Christian view of reality as a whole. So what I'm going to do in this session is I'm going to lay out a distinctively Christian view of reality. We're going to start 50,000 foot It's going to appear through most of tonight that I'm disconnected from work, but it is connected. You'll see what I'm going to do is start out with what is the Christian view of the world, of humans, and of God's relationship to the world and to humans. And it's within that understanding that the Christian view of work is developed. Now, my favorite way to sketch a Christian view of reality is just to tell the Christian story. Just to take the Bible and tell the Bible 
as a single overarching meta-narrative, a large story. Now, some of you have heard me do this before. Some of you have heard me do this recently. Some of you have heard me do this several times. I'm going to start in Genesis, and I'm going to walk through all the way, that's the first book of the Bible, all the way to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and I'm going to show how the whole Bible is shaped as a story and how it's the story of reality. That the Christian view is that the Bible tells the only true story and that all other stories find their truth in relationship to this story. And it's our work in relationship to this story that is the Christian approach. Now, those of you who've heard me do this before, bear with me. But I would also say, listen again, but listen with your ears tuned in to how this story shapes and bears upon work. So, first thing in the Bible... The first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what does this say? It says two things when it comes to work. It says, first of all, God is a worker. In the beginning, God created. He worked. That's what we call work. The first thing we learn about God is that God is a worker. And when we first meet God in the Bible, that's what he's doing. So that's part of the reason I'm saying when somebody asks, you tell me about yourself and you tell them about your job and then they act like that's a... That's an abstraction or that's, uh, that's something foisted on you. No, that's part of what it means to be, in the Christian language, made in the image of God, that who I am is constituted by what I do. The second thing that we see in Genesis 1, the very first verse, is that not only is God a worker, but God created in His work everything. So it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that is a poetic technique called an Erasmus. It, it's, it's picking two terms of extreme. God made what's up there and he made what's down there. It's like me saying to my wife, who's sitting in the back of the room, Janelle, I love you day and night, which is a Erasmus. It means I love you all the time, day and night. I pick two terms of extreme to represent the whole. So when it says God created the heavens and the earth, it doesn't merely mean God made what's up there and he made what's down here. It means, it means that God made everything. So, in the second chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, in verse 15, this is what we hear. It's very interesting. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. And to keep it. Now, there's a lot going on there, but part of what's going on there is that God made humans with the ability to work. God invented work. Jimmy Hoffa didn't invent work. You know, this is God's gig. He came up with it and he gave it to humans to do before anything else came along. We also see in Genesis 2 that God created family. We see that God created art and poetry. We see that God created sex. Everything that exists, God made. Nothing exists that God didn't make. And when God made it, it says seven times in the opening of the Bible that God looks at what he's made and he says it's good. Seven times God looks at his creation, and this includes work, and he declares its goodness. The whole cosmos in the beginning of the Bible is in the presence, it's in the gaze, it is in the embrace of God. Everything lives wholly before God. Everything is under dominion. He's the Lord of all. Now, 
There is a word in the original language of the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, that still hangs around in some cultures today. And it's a great description of what this is about, of this image we get at the beginning of the Bible. That word is shalom. And I think I've got there in your note sheets. Shalom is a life of flourishing and prospering. It's a life where our relationship with God, with each other, and with the non-human creation is luxuriant and thriving. Now, shalom is the word that, that captures that whole incredible, beautiful image. It's a world where we delight in our relationship with God, living before God. It's a world where we delight in our physical surroundings. It's a world where we delight in living rightly, with, with, in living with other human beings. It's a world where we delight in ourselves. This is the way life was meant to be. This is how it was for Adam and Eve, the Bible says. Now, I've just summarized Genesis 1 and 2 from a particular angle, the first two chapters of the Bible. In the third, section, the third chapter of the Bible, sin enters the picture. Adam and Eve commit treason against the king. There's uh, a pastor, a theologian from the fourth century. He says, Adam and Eve threw away their birthright of beauty. Everything when they do this is broken. Shalom is vandalized. The picture we get of sin entering creation in the Bible is the shattering of shalom. Now, here in the West, since the Enlightenment, we tend to minimize the gravity and the scope, and the power of sin. And what we tend to do here in the West is that we restrict sin to individual disobedience. But the picture in the Bible is that sin is two things. It is comprehensive and it is catastrophic. In Genesis 1 and 2, we have a a vision of reality before sin. The last image on the screen of the Bible before sin enters is this. Adam looks at Eve and he starts spouting off erotic poetry. And then the Bible says, a man will leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now think about this. This is the last verse, the last image on the screen of the movie of the Bible before sin occurs. And it's this incredible image of family where there's no shame, there's no fear, there's no secrets, there's no insecurity. This is shalom. But then the very next thing in the Bible is sin. And then the very next scene, after the scene of sin in Scripture, the next scene is one of Adam and Eve's children murdering another child of Adam and Eve. 
So when you compare the image on the screen of the Bible before sin, and then you have the invasion, the tyranny, you have, you have the um, rebellion of sin. The very next scene on the Bible is a picture of family. So you have family before sin, family after sin. And after sin, it's lying and deception and insecurity and jealousy and anger and murder. In other words, when sin occurred, the biblical view is that everything broke, even the institution of family. So the Christian view is that the reason it's so hard to be a family today is not just because you're all jacked up and I'm all jacked up and we're all funky. The the reason it's hard to have good family today is because family itself as an institution deep in its structures with or without you is broken. Now, if I wanted to, I could show you a verse, the first poem in the Bible, it occurs before sin, and the second poem in the Bible, it occurs after sin, and that's a similar comparison. They are, it, it shows us that before sin, art was a certain way, and after sin, art was another way, that sin is the shattering of all of creation. It's a shattering of family, it's a shattering of art, but what I want to notice in particular is how sin shatters work. So I read you a verse earlier, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. This is before sin. It says, The Lord took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. Now there was no sin. Nothing was broken. I mean, work was a good thing. It wasn't, thank God it's Friday. It was more like, thank God it's Monday. Work was this really good thing. And then we have the sin scene. And then the first thing that God says to Adam and Eve after sin, is this. Because you have done this sinful thing, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. And that's a very different image of work after sin. What we see is that the Bible has a lot to say about work. It puts work before sin, and then it shows us an image of work after sin. But what does work look like after sin has entered creation? It's twisted, it's polluted, it's broken. And you know that kind of work. Many of you have have experienced work as a profoundly wounding experience. You know that work can wound us. Whether it's the fact that on your job, you're treated like a number, just a tool, just another cog in a machine. Or maybe you feel chained to your desk or your cab or your computer like some galley ship slave. Or maybe you work in an environment where no one seems to care about you or anything going on in your life. They don't know what's going on with your kids. They don't know if your kids are sick. They don't even know if you have kids. Or maybe you're burned out at work. Or maybe you're experiencing violence at your work and you're being put down or belittled or gripped or griped at. The wounds we can experience at work can utterly shatter us. 
Now, this is one reason some people stop off for a beer on the way home for work or others stop off at the shrink because work can destroy us. At the end of the day, work was created as a good gift by God, but many of us experience anything work as anything but a good gift. And the Bible carefully identifies the brokenness of work as a result of the catastrophic and comprehensive scope of sin in the world. Now, when we keep going through the Bible, there's a, there's a big scene that happens a little bit later where God gets the attention of this guy named Abram, and he says, Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, what we see in this moment in the biblical story of reality is that even after sin occurs, God has not let go of his creation. He continues to embrace his creation and this includes work. So when we turn to the very first pages of the New Testament, The Gospel of Matthew begins by telling the life of Jesus and listen to how the Gospel of Matthew starts. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Another one of the Gospel writers, Luke, his genealogy of Jesus goes all the way back to Adam. Why? Why do the authors who recorded the life of Jesus start their biographies of Jesus' life with long genealogies. It's because for us to understand who Jesus is and what he accomplishes, we must see Jesus as the climax of the story that I've been narrating, the story of reality, of creation, good but broken. And looking at Jesus Christ as the climax of the story that begins with creation enables us to see that at the heart of what God was doing in Jesus is this. God is continuing his work in the world. Jesus Christ is the work of God. In Jesus, God is continuing his work in the world. And what is that work? It is the restoration of shalom. So in the Gospels, these biographies of Jesus, when you, when you read about Jesus doing these amazing miracles, he's healing people of the d- diseases. What is he doing? He is the embodiment of God. He's God in the flesh. And what is he doing? He's working to do what? To restore shalom. He's undoing the effects of sin, the catastrophic, comprehensive effects of sin. He's rescuing humans from bondage. He's restoring creation to the way he was made to be. Because Jesus didn't only heal humans, he also calmed storms. And it was ultimately in his crucifixion and in his resurrection that Jesus took on and defeated the powers of evil. He opens the door to a new creation. And in the resurrection of Jesus, God is working to do what? To foreshadow his plan to resurrect the entire universe. Now, this is why the greatest theologian in the life of the church, the Apostle Paul, 
And in one of his letters in the Bible is Colossians. When he's talking about Jesus, he says, In Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Now, here's what I want to point out about that when it comes to work. When it comes to the scope of God's work in the world through Jesus in the incredible drama of salvation, the scope of God's work is as great as the scope of creation itself. Now this is a fundamental key for the Christian view of work. In Christ... We see that God is at work in the world. And just like sin was comprehensive and catastrophic, God's work in Christ in the world is restorative and comprehensive. The restoration of what? Shalom. What was God doing in Jesus? He was restoring shalom. Remember the definition of shalom? Life the way it was meant to be, where we delight in living rightly before God and rightly in our physical surroundings and rightly with our fellow human beings and rightly with ourselves. In Jesus, God is at work in this world. I love this way of putting it. Rewebbing together God, humans, and the created world. Because sin is fractured God humans and the created world. So in Christ, God is at work restoring a life of flourishing and prospering where our relationships with God and each other and the non-human creation are luxuriant and thriving. Now this is, this is a key point for everything I'm going to say over the next three weeks. And over the next three weeks, it's going to get much more practical. But this is the backdrop against which all the practical stuff works. At the heart of the view of work that we see in Christian scripture is a refusal to relegate God to the spiritual realm. At the heart of a Christian view of work is a refusal to separate spirit and matter. And the reason I'm taking so much time to belabor this point tonight is because Christianity has been plagued by making a mistake on this point. Dualism is what it's called when you separate the spiritual realm from the physical realm. And what I mean by dualism is this idea that spiritual reality is different than physical reality. Or you can put it in terms of work, that your spiritual life is different than your work life. See, too often in the West, Christianity is two hours on Sunday, and the rest of life is the real life. But there are not two realities in the Christian view. In the words of a great German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, there is only one reality, and that reality is the reality of God, which has become manifest in Christ in the reality of the world. There's only one reality. The work of God in Jesus is not just to offer forgiveness. It's absolutely that. It's not just to save us. It's absolutely that. But he came to do more than forgive us. He came to restore family and art and government and science and schools and work. 
Now, it's important for us to see that this view of reality, this view of the world and of humans and of God's work in the world is in direct contrast to our Western culture's heritage. You see, Plato, Greek philosopher from the 5th and 4th centuries BC, he says the human destiny is upward in heaven. The human destiny is otherworldly. That your soul escapes from this world into a spiritual world. And that our goal in life as humans is to ascend. To escape. It was Plato who says we are saved not as part of this world, but we are saved from this world. Now that's a... Platonic view of reality, a Western view of reality that is absolutely alien to every page of the Christian scriptures. The Christian claim is that God made the spiritual and the physical and the work of God is for the spiritual and the physical. So when we turn to the end of scripture, I'm not going to do this, but if we were to take the time to read the last two pages of the Bible... I'm telling the story of the Bible tonight. If we were to jump and read the last two pages of the Bible, you know what we would see? We wouldn't see a Casper convention in the sky with a bunch of disembodied spirits floating around in some kind of, like, um, I don't know, spiritual seance or something. No, what you see in the last two pages of the Bible is a profoundly physical vision of where this whole thing is headed. We see a vision of this universe... This physical reality healed, made right, cleansed, all the bad stuff taken out. Over and over in the last two pages it says that God is restoring the physical life, not yanking us from the physical life. The relationships with humans are healed in the end of the Bible. The relationships between humans and the natural world is healed. The relationships between humans and themselves and humans and God, it's all healed. And the key in the, script, in the, biblical, in the Christian scriptures is Jesus Christ. It's not that we work this up. It's that the work of Jesus makes this possible. The last two chapters of the Bible, just like in the first two chapters of the Bible... God leads us to expect a glorious renewal of embodied physical life, including work, here on earth. Now, the reason that's important for work is this. The church, Christianity, lives from the end. It lives from that vision. You see, a central claim of Christianity is that the end matters more than the beginning. And that where this thing is headed has more power in your life than your family of origin. That, 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 that where this thing is headed matters for now. 
that this world, this physical world is going to be healed and, and to act like this physical world in your job, to act like it doesn't matter to the larger purposes of God, from the Christian perspective, that dishonors God and it distorts our mission as God's people. Athanasius, again, a Christian bishop in Alexandria in the 4th century, he wrote that when Christ, when God, became, when God became human, when Christ took on a physical body, he guaranteed that the physical stuff of the world would no longer be mortal, in bondage to decay and corruption. In taking the material of this earth into himself, God has filled this earth with immortality. Now, Real quick, I'm going to apply this to several different pieces of work. And then I'm going to wrap it up for tonight. And like I said, it was a 50,000 foot view. will descend over the next several weeks. But let me just, just think about business for a minute. How does this view of reality, in, how does it shape how I think about business? How someone thinks about business? Well, some very simple things. First of all, it says that business is fundamentally good, but broken. So to approach business from a Christian perspective is is to labor for the return of business to its original calling. See, what it means for a businessman is that your burden is to ask what was business originally for? Because the work of God in the world is restorative, restoring shalom. So what was business originally for? Why did God design business in the first place? And I would say, we'll get into this more in the third week. The the purpose of business is to lovingly serve the needs of fellow citizens in a delightful and fulfilling way. Instead of making a small minority very rich... While oppressing the poor. Now, I would say that business is just as holy of a calling as my job as clergy. Because all of the world is God's world. And all of the spheres of the world matter to God. And so, you know, it's funny to me that a lot of churches will pray for missionaries. But they don't pray for their accountants on April the 15th, you know. It's this, it's this dualism. A lot of churches will pray for people in ministry, but they never pray for school teachers. They never pray, pray for the businessmen. See, that's dualism. That's the idea that the spiritual work matters, but the physical work doesn't. Take politics. Politics is a holy calling. And, and the job of a Christian in politics is to be ethical. Yeah, yeah, yeah Absolutely. But the, the, but the job of a Christian in politics is far more than that. It's the job of anybody in politics, Christian or not. It's to labor so that politics does what it's made to do by the Creator. To work for justice. To establish justice. To maintain justice. Take art, for example. There are some people, clearly from this room... That God gives the necessary gifts to labor in the field of art. I'm not one of them. Neither my singing nor my drawing have ever given me such an idea. 
There are people who paint and sculpt and dance and draw and design. You know what they're doing? They're taking the physical medium they work in. And they're, I think from the Christian view, this is a huge discussion, what is art and what makes art, art. But I would say from the Christian view, it's to take a physical medium, whether it's dance or drawing or design or sculpting or painting, and to try to shape it into something that is good, true, and beautiful. Or some combination thereof. Because our God is a God of truth and beauty. In fact, I said the first thing we recognize about God in the Bible is that he works. It's actually that he's a particular type of worker. He's an artist. The type of work God does first in the Bible is create. That's what an artist does. Take athletics. So I would just say, our God is a God of truth and beauty. He can't bring himself to make two trees that look the same way. So what we need to do is lift up the artistic vocation. We, as Christians, we need to pray for artists who can wisely discern how to work redemptively in art. And it certainly doesn't mean what some Christian musicians think. It's putting the maximum amount of Jesus per minute in their song. JPMs. That's a very shallow approach to art. Uh, Take athletics and competition. Sports, athletics are a gift from God. Sport and competition needs no justification. In and of itself, competition is a gift from God to humans. But it's been twisted. Sports can easily become an idol. So an athlete whose allegiance is to King Jesus, what is his job? It is to discern the idols and the brokenness and to work in sport in a way that is consistent with the grain of the universe. Again, I'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. Take education as an example. One last example. Over the last several centuries, education has been shaped in America from top to bottom, from top to bottom, by a worldview tilted toward consumerism and economics. And because economics has gotten into the driver's seat of universities, it is twisting universities. It's, it's polluting them. It's, it's, it's problematizing what they do. Also, education has been shaped from top to bottom with an idolatrous faith in science. In the name of secular, in the name of religious neutrality, we've just replaced traditional religions with religious faith in science and technology. Now, I'm not saying science and religion are opposed, but the way the secular world and the way the fundamentalist world skew them, they both skew them as opposed. There is also within education the myth of religious neutrality. So working in education for a Christian is about far more than being kind and fair. Now, I've just picked like five things real quick to show that Christianity offers a rich and deep well for thinking about work. Whether your work is journalism or psychology or scholarship or being a mechanic or medicine or law or city planning or parenting or educating, the list goes on and on. My goal for tonight has been just to lay out the basic but deep idea that God is a worker and His work in the world matters 
for your work. And next week I'll be a little more practical and the third week even more practical. But it's important that we spend our time on these deeper fundamental issues because in reality it's here. You know, if a rocket takes off headed toward the moon and it's just an inch pointed in the wrong direction, by the time it gets there, it's at Mars or something, you know. And it's, to be honest, for many of us, it's at this deep subterranean level where we're off. And by the time we get to the very real life of work, we're miles from the target. 